Welcome to the Communique podcast. The objectives of the Communiques are to develop, produce and distribute electronic educational publications that encourage clinical practice to change for the benefits of patients, residents, health and aged care services and the whole community. Over half of our subscribers attribute a change in their clinical practice due to the communique. The print versions in these podcasts present cases of premature and preventable deaths that occur in health and aged care settings. We explore three areas. What happened? Why did it happen? And what action can we take to prevent it from happening again? The cases are the accounts from the completed medico-legal death investigation of the coroner's court and our team of senior medical and nursing practitioner present this coronial information in a manner and format that is familiar to clinicians. Our three publications are the clinical communique, focusing on acute care, the future leaders communique, designed for recent health graduates, and the residential aged care communique, which examines deaths in aged care or nursing homes. The online print versions are available at our website, thecommuniques.com, which also includes the resources recommended for each edition. Welcome to this podcast titled COVID-19 and Psychological Safety for Healthcare Workers, where we are drawing on the content from the September 2020 edition of the Clinical Communicate. I'm Dr. Nicola Cunningham, the Editor-in-Chief of this series. After many months of watching the world around us change dramatically, we wanted to put together an edition of the Clinical Communicate that talked about psychological safety of healthcare workers. There's been a lot of really good work done looking at the immediate risks of physical harm to healthcare workers, the need for adequate personal protective equipment, and the health effects of contracting the COVID-19 virus. There has also been a lot of work that focuses on the mental health of our communities in the face of this crisis. But there is another emerging aspect of harm brought about by this virus, harm that is actually much harder to recognise and quantify, but that can be debilitating for many years to come and that is the psychological harm to healthcare workers. The risks of vicarious trauma, of moral injury, the tensions in finding risk equilibrium, of working in a potentially hazardous environment where it's not only our safety or our patient's safety at risk, but also our families, the safety of our loved ones that we think about. We need to focus on this now, in the present, so that we can learn vital lessons to prevent this type of harm, rather than wait for a time in the future where all we can do is look back and reflect on how we should have looked after ourselves and each other better. So this time we're doing things a little differently. This podcast features four expert commentaries from clinical leaders in their fields. They each offer practical and persuasive guidance on strategies to help address the significant psychological risks to healthcare workers working in a COVID-19 environment. So let's now listen to Luke Ward narrate the editorial. Editorial from Dr. Nicola Cunningham. Welcome to episode three of the Clinical Communique podcast. 2020 has been a year of firsts in so many respects for the professional and personal lives of almost everyone on the planet. In healthcare, we have had to rethink our systems, redefine our teams, and reflect on our individual practices. The words our number, unprecedented, and followed have become as commonplace as the personal protective equipment, also referred to as PPE, 
that we now reach for on a daily basis. The clinical communiques have always been about patient safety, but we have also focused on healthcare worker safety. Now, more than ever, we need to talk about healthcare worker safety. Vital discussions are taking place about the long-term mental health effects of the pandemic on the community and the acute effects of PPE failure on healthcare workers. Rightly so, but what about the long-term effects of working in healthcare during the COVID-19 pandemic? The insidious, cumulative, psychological harm of working in a constantly evolving environment that is not what many of us chose for ourselves. Those discussions are emerging, but many of us are too busy, too tired, too focused on other matters right now to stop and pay attention to our own health. It will be many years before we fully understand the consequences of the pandemic on healthcare workers, but we should be proactive and prevent harm today so that the incident reviews and coronial investigations do not occur tomorrow. So in yet another first, this edition of the Clinical Communique dispenses with our standard format and presents four expert commentaries that offer guidance to healthcare workers on establishing and maintaining psychological safety during the pandemic. Dr. Jesse Zanker writes a compelling piece about self-care and recognizing vicarious trauma during COVID-19. And Dr. Michelle Ananda Rajar astutely outlines the importance of framing PPE and healthcare worker safety within an occupational health and safety lens. Dr. Mia Kubit shares her humanizing perspective on leading a profession at the front line. And Dr. Neil Cunningham discusses risk and moral injury with insightful tips on creating a safe environment at work. Each of these experts is working tirelessly in their roles to improve the safety of their teams, as well as their patients and the broader healthcare worker community. And they bring a wealth of knowledge and their own personal accounts of the pandemic to their commentaries. There are immeasurable emotions that this pandemic raises for healthcare workers. Emotions that are conflicting, skewed and accentuated by the changes taking place around us. We have all seen or had those fleeting moments of doubt where, as healthcare workers, we have wanted to close the door, stay inside and not face another day of working in a COVID-19 environment. We have watched colleagues wrestle with the sense of guilt of not being able to continue face-to-face -face care, to stand alongside their team at the front line. Others continue to work when they are feeling unwell, driven by a strong sense of altruism, reputational duty or habit. Some healthcare workers have become disheartened and angry, holding tight to clinical rules that don't apply in a pandemic environment, or feeling uneasy about delivering care that is not to our pre-COVID-19 standard. Not being able to develop the same level of rapport or examine our patients thoroughly because of COVID-19 safety precautions and knowing that we look intimidating to patients and families in our PPE are challenges we are still coming to terms with. These situations are all difficult and require us to make substantial mental shifts. We often think of a system as a mechanical production line that is devoid of humans and operates under any circumstance, needing occasional maintenance, not so in health. 
The systems have had to change, and the humans operating within them must adapt psychologically as well as physically. The behaviour of the virus is predictable. It is how we as humans respond to a rapidly changing environment that is harder to foresee. We cannot fight the virus. We must instead fight our behaviours and attitudes in order to develop protective mechanisms and resilience to withstand the lasting effects of this crisis. The COVID-19 pandemic is challenging us all emotionally and ethically. Conventional moral virtues are being tested and the fragility of our healthcare systems has been laid bare. Disquieting though it may be, a conversation about healthcare worker vulnerabilities that foreshadows the psychological impacts of the pandemic is necessary to prevent harm. Failure to self-care by each and every health professional has dire consequences for all concerned. In the final paragraph of Middle March, the novelist George Eliot pays tribute to the people who may not be known or remembered, but who keep the world moving forward in small yet indispensable ways. People like healthcare workers who make a difference for those they encounter in their everyday lives. As George Eliot wrote, for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Let's now listen to the expert commentary by Dr. Jesse Zanker who explores important aspects of self-care and how as healthcare workers, our safety is our patient's safety. Jesse reminds us that at the centre of everything that is taking place during this pandemic, there are people, patients and staff, their families, people who each bear their own emotions and experiences of the events this year. It is a timely reminder to stop, take a breath and be kind to ourselves and each other. Expert commentary number one. Our safety is our patient's safety. From Dr. Jesse Zenker, geriatrician, researcher, ethical practice tutor, and PhD scholar at Echuca Regional Health and Western Health, also at Aria Health and Aboriginal Community Elder Services, University of Melbourne and Deakin University. In times of disaster, distress and anxiety are ubiquitous. Emotional distress affects us all in complex and varied ways. Anxiety may be more contagious than the virus we are so desperately trying to contain with boundless reach. Clinicians are not immune to either infection or anxiety or other forms of psychological and emotional distress. The very nature of our work makes us even more vulnerable to both. We may have constant worry about the risk of infection to ourselves and our families, anxiety about communicating bad news to patients and their loved ones, and concern about the health system that is struggling to support us all. Beneath these challenges, we may also be managing personal issues, pressures of homeschooling, separation from family, relationship difficulties, financial strain, living in a bubble, but we are not alone. You and your team. Many months have now passed since the alarm of pandemic was sounded. What initially felt like a sprint 
has evolved into a marathon, but without the dampening of pace or a clear finish line. The competitive marathon runner knows well that theirs is a team sport. On the long road, there are moments of desperate isolation, exhaustion, and an inner dialogue that may repeat, stop, quit. The runner must tirelessly draw on their own reserves and the support of their team to reach their destination in good and safe time. Perhaps now more than ever, we must be attuned to our own well-being and the well-being of our team members. Many, by necessity, have established a new manner in their interactions with colleagues, a new normal. In the recent past, we could depend on our observational skills to prompt us asking a colleague if they were okay. We may have recognised a strained expression, a subtle pause in conversation, a tired posture, or the loss of their usual vigour. Some may have been working within a team for months, but have never seen a certain colleague smile or have not inspected a workmate's new forearm tattoo or not known of a friend's impressive moustache that flourished in isolation. We may have only seen tired, kind eyes and sweaty forehead obscured by a foggy shield. To ensure the safety of our patients, ourselves and our colleagues, it is vital that we practice empathy and kindness to all, including ourselves, that transcends the vice of personal protective equipment. We can't solely rely on our powers of observation to prompt considered inquiry. We must purposefully and regularly ask our colleagues and ask ourselves, are you okay? Am I okay? And be compassionate, honest, forgiving, and prepared in our responses. We also must recognize our role, not just as clinicians caring for patients, but as leaders and active team members. Calm and supportive leadership, even on a small scale level, has never been more important. Group anxiety and distress are palpable when entering chaotic and challenging environments, such as COVID-affected residential aged care facilities. It is easy and normal to be overwhelmed by such scenes. At times, we may need to be like the duck, gliding across the water with calm haste, even though under the surface, the duck's legs are paddling furiously. Offering words of support to distressed colleagues is critical in times like these. We're here to help, support you and work together. You are not alone. For many clinicians, the term frontline may seem immodest or grandiose. Clinicians caring for the sick are accustomed to challenging clinical situations, conversations about death, dying and grief. The COVID-19 pandemic has magnified the intensity and volume of difficult clinical scenarios against a backdrop of uncertainty and global anxiety. Repeated exposures to such can result in burnout and a heightened risk of vicarious trauma, particularly in those practicing empathically. Communicating in hard times. Communicating bad news effectively and compassionately is core to a clinician's work. These conversations are hard. Breaking bad news in the familiar and unusual setting can be emotion-filled and exhausting. The pandemic has added multiple layers of uncertainty to these interactions, where exhaustion and unfamiliarity have become the norm. We need to be aware of and acknowledge this. 
Families, next of kin and unwell loved ones are often separated physically and emotionally in this pandemic. We clinicians may often find ourselves as the only clear link of communication connecting family or next of kin, usually over the phone with their unwell loved one. Preparation can equip us with the tools to support not only others' emotions, but our own. Here, I present an approach to these difficult conversations adopted during the pandemic, coupled with sentiments commonly heard in the field. At the heart of this approach is honesty and compassion while maintaining self-awareness of one's role, abilities and limitations. One, anticipate distress. I should have taken mum out of that nursing home. I knew what was coming. Said by the daughter of a residential aged care resident who contracted COVID-19 in an outbreak facility. Anxiety and distress should be considered the norm, not the exception. Many may not have seen or communicated with their loved one for months. Many will be welcoming your phone call, but also be dreading it. Awareness of anticipatory grief supports a more compassionate conversation. Two, recognize and respond to emotions. I never should have taken dad out for lunch. I gave him that virus. Said by the son of a residential aged care facility resident. We have been seldom able to meet families and loved ones in person. This defies our learnings of the ideal breaking bad news setting. Bad news may often be delivered over the phone while wearing a mask and shield, which can affect the nuances of expression. Having anticipated distress, we become better equipped to recognize and explore the emotions loved ones may experience. Some ways to explore these emotions are to name or normalize the emotion. In the example above, the likely emotion being expressed by the son of a residential care resident is guilt. Normalizing this emotion could be to ask the family member. Many people tell me they feel really helpless and sometimes even guilty. Is this something that you feel? It is important to say, I'm sorry. You may be sorry for the situation, the dislocation, the heartache. It's okay to say this and it is not admission of guilt or fault. For many, Knowing it is normal to feel the way they do can bring relief. I shouldn't be upset. Others have it so much worse. Said by many people affected by the pandemic. The way patients and loved ones feel and the way you may be feeling at this time is real and valid. We clinicians often defer acknowledging our emotions in the hope that partitioning feelings will enable us to complete our duties. Like the duck indefinitely paddling on the pond, self-awareness is critical in the present time. We cannot pour from an empty cup. The way we feel at a given time is largely relative to our own prior experiences. While we can glean some selfish form of comfort, knowing ours is not so bad compared with other circumstances, this can only provide a limited buffer from emotional distress. Patients and people in the community are no different in this regard. Three, tell the truth, address mistruths, and be honest about your uncertainty. 
This virus is a death sentence, said by a family member receiving bad news. COVID-19 infection may result in an array of clinical presentations in people from asymptomatic to critically unwell. Further, the clinical course of infection, particularly in older people, may involve a protracted period of delirium. Expressing this uncertainty is important. Prevarication creates another layer of uncertainty and must always be avoided. Many in the community hear the daily COVID-19 mortality count and may assume that infection, particularly in older people, frailer people, will inevitably result in death. While mortality rates are unacceptably high in many settings, addressing mistruths that propagate distress while not generating false hope may create a more balanced picture of a loved one's possible course in illness. 4. Reassure and plan. I'm doing everything I can for your loved one, said by many clinicians working in the pandemic. There are many things that are out of control in this pandemic. What we can control is the direct support we can provide to patients and families, how we seek out help when we need it, and hopefully where we allocate our time. Offering what you can in a heartfelt manner and not feeling responsible for circumstances beyond your control can deliver some reassurance to patients' loved ones. Doing so may also remind you of your abilities and limitations and mitigate creeping self-doubt about whether you did everything you could. Be aware of resources and referral pathways available to people in distress and provide these where appropriate. A path forward. The experiences of working in COVID-affected residential aged care facilities have at times devastated me. Many readers may feel the same within their own workplaces. Colleagues have shared stories of consecutive sleepless nights, tears in the car on the drive home, and feeling powerless against seemingly unchangeable injustices. The moral injury and trauma of what we've experienced and may be yet to experience, can be profound. This is not to be diminished by us nor anyone else. These are all valid feelings. We have supports available, strength in numbers, and in each other. We may also draw strength from a sense of purpose that better in our systems is possible. I'm hopeful that the knowledge we gain from this experience and the actions we may feel compelled to take will illuminate a path leading to a better person-centred care and outcomes. Simone de Beauvoir said, The individual who is engaged in their time period, who tries to have a hold on history by an action, has much richer and much more profound ties with the world than the one who withdraws from the world in an ivory tower. While the approach I've described offers suggestions for communicating with our patients, colleagues and loved ones. The same applies to us as clinicians. Asking for help and seeking it out, in whatever form that may be, is a mark of strength, not weakness. Be kind to yourself, you deserve it, and you owe it to your colleagues and patients.
Let's now listen to the expert commentary by Dr. Michelle Ananda Raja, who puts a workplace health and safety lens on the critical issues of protecting healthcare workers during the COVID-19 pandemic. Michelle empowers us to apply safety systems approaches to the pressing issue of keeping healthcare workers safe in their workplaces. Expert commentary number two, flattening the hierarchy to keep healthcare workers safe from Dr. Michelle Ananda Rishar, General Medicine and Infectious Diseases Physician, Melbourne. One of the silver linings to the COVID-19 pandemic has been in raising the profile of workplace health and safety in Australian healthcare, especially for healthcare workers. In Victoria, over 3,400 healthcare workers were infected with COVID-19, creating three separate challenges. The first of these challenges is for the individual facing significant known and unknown effects of COVID-19 on their lives, livelihoods, and families. The second is for health service operations that are compromised with flow-on effects to the whole healthcare system. Finally, the challenge of healthcare workers becoming vectors for onward transmission, creating a healthcare to community to healthcare cycle, which perpetuates the pandemic. Optimal workplace health and safety practice is essential to preventing and managing these challenges. Better integration of workplace health and safety systems in healthcare is needed during and after this pandemic. Not only does this address the employer's obligation to staff, it also meets employee and community expectations. Clinicians and healthcare leaders are becoming more familiar with the language of workplace health and safety. The phrase hierarchy of controls or the international standard ISO 45001, which is a global ISO standard for management systems of occupational health and safety, would have been foreign to many of us a few months ago, but represent the how-to of making our workplaces safer. Introduced in 1950 by the US National Safety Council, the hierarchy of controls has a simple yet profound ethos that Controlling exposures to occupational hazards is the fundamental method of protecting workers. The hierarchy of controls framework takes a tiered approach to risk management, using the now familiar inverted pyramid with the most effective approach at the top, elimination of the hazard. Subsequent actions are progressively less effective, from substitution to engineering controls to administrative controls, and finally, PPE. What does this mean for healthcare? A timely guide by the Australasian Faculty of Environmental and Occupational Medicine spells out the specifics within the hierarchy of controls for a workplace during the COVID-19 pandemic. Elimination of the hazard translates to the following actions. First, cancellation of non-urgent surgery. If there are no elective patients, then there are not any patients infected with COVID-19 that pose a hazard to staff. Second, addressing presenteeism in staff, a greater risk than absenteeism. Additional actions include removing vulnerable healthcare workers from high-risk COVID-19 zones, restricting visitor access, and substitution of face-to-face -face appointments with telehealth or virtual consultations. 
These actions create an unavoidable dissonance and competing priorities for healthcare professionals. Elimination and substitution options are often not feasible because being a doctor, nurse, or any other health professional is hazardous and avoiding COVID-19 positive patients is simply not possible. Higher order elimination, substitution, and engineering controls are more effective but infrequently used in healthcare. This is not new and was evident in pre-pandemic times. A review of risk control recommendations following root cause analysis into serious adverse events in healthcare found that 78% of implemented risk controls were administrative in nature. Examples of administrative controls include foot traffic restrictions, rostering changes, social distancing, and disinfection of high-touch surfaces. Adherence tends to be better with engineering, aka design controls, rather than administrative controls. Engineering controls during COVID-19 include the installation of perspex barriers, negative pressure or isolation rooms, improved ventilation, ideally with HEPA filters, local exhaust ventilation, remote monitoring of vital signs, for example, with biosensors, cohorting of positive patients, ventilation hoods, and so on. However, engineering controls are not easy to implement in healthcare. They require the will of management, accommodating or overcoming the constraints of aging infrastructure and being able to find the resources and finances for these often expensive solutions. Thus, in healthcare, the systematic approach to workplace health and safety often requires imperfect solutions that often compete with optimal practice. PPE is recognised as the least effective approach in the hierarchy of controls. PPE requires proper training, fit testing of respiratory protective equipment, that is, a formal evaluation by a trained operator of respirator seal, compatibility and stability that is distinct to the quick self-fit check performed at donning. It may impair movement, vision and dexterity and may have physical impacts including heat stress and dehydration or facial pressure areas from tight-fitting respirators. These drawbacks have unwittingly contributed to the perception that PPE is not worthwhile. PPE is a life-saving intervention, especially when the other forms of controls, elimination, substitution, engineering, administrative, are compromised or absent, as may be commonplace in healthcare. This is especially so for respiratory protection, noting that the surgical mask is not approved for respiratory protection by any regulatory authority, for example, the FDA or TGA and does not substitute the N95, P2, respirator or above, such as elastomerics, powered air purifying respirators, for suspected or confirmed COVID-19 positive patients. What is seen in healthcare is that the hierarchy of controls is predominantly reduced to only two of the five layers. In essence, it becomes flattened with the weaker controls, administrative and PPE, often being our only controls. As such, their importance is well above their usual designated status in the hierarchy of controls pyramid.
One option to recognize their importance is to dispense with the hierarchy altogether, adapting it to a flat or linear framework known as control band. In this simpler framework, preventative interventions target the source, the infected person, pathway, the roots of transmission to the worker, and the receptor being the worker. Ultimately, these frameworks help us consider risk assessment and hazard reduction in the workplace, noting that this holistic approach is the domain of areas such as occupational and environmental medicine, supported by expertise in occupational hygiene, heating, ventilation, air conditioning, rather than solely infection control. Other standards worth understanding include ISO 45001, which is an integrated system approach to workplace health and safety. It is a proactive approach promoted by chief executives because safe workplaces are good for staff, patients, business, and the bottom line. A systematic approach mitigates against reputational injury, loss to revenue from payouts or loss of productivity, and brings secondary benefits like preferred employer status. Currently, only one public hospital in Victoria has ISO 45001 accreditation, and that was achieved very recently in 2018 and 2019. While workplace health and safety systems like ISO 45001 takes time and resources to implement, their absence does not detract from employer obligations set out under workplace health and safety legislation. The Australian Work Health and Safety Act mandates consultation with workers on matters relating to their safety. This safeguard exists to address the power imbalance between workers who will be in the risk zone and management. It also allows management to gauge worker appetite for risk and for workers to influence the final determination of what level of risk they are willing to tolerate. Psychological safety is as important as physical safety. To achieve this requires engaging workers who often understand risks better than any external observer. Omitting this step not only contravenes workplace health and safety legislation, but it may lead to failure in recognising valid risks, thereby placing workers in harm's way. The penalties associated with worker harm are intentionally substantive to act as a deterrent for employers who choose to look the other way. Flattening the hierarchical lines of engagement between workers and management, along with the tiered approach to hazard controls, are practical steps that will make Australian healthcare workplaces safer today. The COVID-19 pandemic presents an opportunity for healthcare organisations to consider integrated workplace health and safety systems like ISO 45001, a systematic, planned and precautionary approach to workplace health and safety is always preferable to a reactive approach. Preparation and investment in workplace health and safety will certainly protect healthcare workers, management, organisations and consumers for the next public health crisis. Here is the expert commentary by Dr Neil Cunningham, who describes the pandemic effects of impaired risk analysis, risk mitigation and moral harm to healthcare workers. Aspects of work that are so relevant to the long-term health and well-being of frontline workers, yet so easily overlooked. 
Neil looks at how human behavior and decision-making changes in a pandemic, and he offers key take-home points on what can be done to support healthcare workers in adapting to and rising above the changes. Expert commentary number three. Risk, decision-making, and moral injury in the time of COVID-19 from Dr. Neil Cunningham, Emergency Physician, Director, Medical Workforce, Clinical Lead, Ethos Program, St. Vincent's Hospital, Melbourne. For healthcare workers, some of the challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic have come in the form of rapidly changing guidelines, recommendations, and systems. There is now a higher requirement for flexible thinking and individual risk analysis of clinical situations that would normally fall into well-worn patterns of care. How has COVID-19 affected our ability to analyse risk to patients and ourselves, to mitigate that risk, and what are the potential personal ramifications for clinicians of these alterations to our decision-making processes? Impaired risk analysis. Humans are subject to a number of cognitive biases that leave us generally poor at analysing risk, especially to ourselves. These include the availability heuristic, overestimating the importance of information available to us, salience, our focus on the most easily recognisable features of a potential risk, for example, sharks and earthquakes generating large responses despite being statistically rare. The bandwagon effect. The risk of adopting a belief increases with an increasing number of others who hold that belief. The societal effects of COVID-19 upon human behavior and decision-making may move along a thousand different tangents. From persons under financial stress, deciding whether to keep attending work while symptomatic with possible COVID-19 infection to teenagers making impulsive decisions to follow or discard socially restrictive rules. Adolescent brains are poorly designed to analyse risk due to a mature pleasure-seeking system being matched to an immature executive decision-making system. Our individual risk analysis decisions are informed by context, maturity, and the expected behaviour of our groups and are made both consciously and unconsciously. The sudden changes to our social norms are destabilizing and create uncertainty and confusion for individuals. This uncertainty itself then leads to a state of high arousal combined with a feeling of unpleasantness. Nowhere has this been more immediately obvious than in a healthcare setting where the effects of rapidly changing information on safety guidelines have been compounded by a new and powerful variable, fear. There have been well-publicised high rates of healthcare worker infections in Victoria and public health information regarding safety has had to compete with the availability of 24-hour news from around the world reporting morbidity, death and distress of colleagues easily identifiable as us. This means that staff face a genuine and immediate existential crisis without their usual social support mechanisms at home and work due to social distancing measures. This has led to protracted levels of stress among healthcare workers during the COVID-19 period. High emotional states tend to adversely affect cognitive decision-making, muffling our executive systems, 
in our prefrontal cortex and exaggerating our responses. A key point is this. During COVID-19, this uncertainty and fear among healthcare workers can be somewhat countered by clear, consistent messages with evidence-based guidelines when addressing key subjects such as safe PPE practice and required system changes, and acknowledgement of the increased need for psychological support for staff. Risk mitigation. As we continue learning about this particular virus, our healthcare guidelines and hospital processes have sometimes seemed to swing like pendulums with each new piece of information. This may be a response to the latest WHO report on aerosolized transmission, a sudden increase in local patient or staff case numbers, or unilateral decisions made by one group that affects another. Sometimes these responses have not made sense to frontline staff, leaving them with a sense that, unusually, they are not able to do their best for the patient in front of them. This is hugely challenging for individuals whose professional and personal identities incorporate the need to be an advocate for their patients and families. Here's an example from one of my staff in a feedback session. Recently, due to COVID-19 bureaucracy, a patient's life was lost. It certainly raised some emotional responses as it's not the first time we've seen significant delays with inter-hospital transports, non-timely swabs, delays in radiography, and access to theatre. In fact, these types of death and morbidity don't make it to any stats in relation to COVID-19, yet the rate at which those patients are affected is arguably much higher than coronavirus-related mortality. Every time we introduce a safety mechanism into a system, we potentially introduce a different type of risk. Some you can plan for, others are unpredictable. This is known as risk equilibrium. In addition to this, people are prone to risk compensation, adjusting their behaviour to the perceived level of risk, behaving more carefully if it is a high perceived risk and less carefully for a low perceived risk. Examples include the use of helmets in sport. Players may have a false sense of security and hit harder thereby increasing the risk of acute repeated head injury and car safety features, resulting in people driving in a riskier way, seat belts, faster speeds, ABS, closer to the car in front. COVID-19 is throwing up a number of these scenarios at both individual and system levels, with the recently observed low rates of cancer screening and imaging likely to result in higher long-term mortality rates. Higher levels of PPE may cause staff to feel safer and relax their alertness to the potential for contamination, especially if fatigued or in a non-clinical area, such as the tea room or the entry slash exit into a hospital. Time critical cases are being delayed by assessments, scans or transfers blocked by systems designed to protect staff and patients from the spread of COVID-19. An example is an acute myocardial infarction case that would normally be fast-tracked to the cath lab, but is instead delayed by a longer stay in the emergency department for an echocardiogram under full COVID-19 precautions, 
in order to exclude a COVID-19 cardiomyopathy mimicking a STEMI. Fixation upon COVID and non-COVID-19 diagnoses is also likely to increase the risk of missing other diagnoses due to cognitive biases, with two of the most common being availability bias and anchoring bias, which is an over-reliance upon the first piece of information given, in this case, possible COVID-19 diagnosis. How should we proceed in a new environment where fear of missing diagnoses and delivering suboptimal treatment is being disrupted by an existential threat and new and unexpected barriers in the system? A new optimal state of alertness combines a recognition of the increased level of perceived risk to the patient and to ourselves caused by a new threat, the increased risk to the patient posed by our safety interventions, such as missed and delayed diagnoses, and the increased risk to ourselves posed by our safety interventions, including emotional and professional risks. This approach requires intelligent, flexible and repeated risk assessments by the people on the front line and can't be fixed by too rigid or too broad protocols. This is achieved by asking questions such as, does this transfer test assessment need to be in person, on phone or with telehealth, or delayed until COVID negative, or not done at all? It also requires healthcare workers to put the safety of our patients, ourselves and our colleagues front and centre, but with COVID-19 as a component of the safety matrix, rather than the only thing. This comes down to dealing with an infinite number of high complex scenarios with a simple question, what is the best option for the current scenario? If the systems we are currently working in are repeatedly failing our patients, we should challenge and adjust the system, bearing in mind that no protocol will work perfectly. We need to set up frameworks that allow us to deal with complexity using the expertise of the staff on the front line. The key points are, during the COVID-19 pandemic, systems are in flux and new and emerging information may result in further changes to clinical systems. Regular feedback sessions should be held with frontline workers to obtain high quality feedback, identify new barriers to care and inform changes to clinical pathways. Individuals should be empowered to advocate for their patients and work within their teams to address the question, what is the best option for the current scenario? Moral harm. In the feedback example given above, the staff member was distressed by delays in patient care caused by COVID-19 bureaucracy. Even if this delay is due to a change in policy designed to protect that very staff member, the disruption to a normal process and the sensation of not being able to provide the best quality care is psychologically challenging. So what happens when our sense of what we or others should do doesn't match up with what we do or witness? If our deeply held moral values are challenged in this way, we suffer harm and experience a loss of trust in ourselves and our environment. In healthcare and medicine in particular, this type of moral injury and the environment that it occurs in has been well documented. There are rigid hierarchies, tribal alliances, 
and significant normalization of deviant behavior. This is the cultural homogenization that occurs when a staff member witnesses someone more senior, a legitimate authority figure, performing an act incorrectly or inappropriately without repercussions. Individuals gradually reinterpret suboptimal practice or behavior as non-deviant and so learn how to implement the act, including how to document, discuss, and justify it. We can't escape ourselves as a judge of ourselves and repeated deviation from our previously held values and beliefs may result in an array of responses from self-loathing and depression to outrage, grandiosity, and pseudo-narcissism. The added stress imposed by COVID-19 is challenging our ability to look after our patients, both COVID-19 and non-COVID-19, and ourselves with concerns about the availability of PPE, colleagues testing positive, or working extra shifts due to following or staff. Attempting to advocate for a patient's timely care in an environment where real or perceived barriers are introduced, or where sudden changes to systems cause delays or confusion, may result in distress for clinicians. It may also result in acute triggering or accumulated psychological trauma. The key points are, acknowledge the unique challenges of COVID-19 and recognize the greater need for individual advocacy and high level communication between teams in a chronically high stress environment. Where possible, communicate process changes and the rationale for them to all affected team members. Provide a variety of support options to clinicians, both clinical, feedback and debriefing, and psychological. In summary, we are not robots, and our emotions inform our decision-making more than we like to acknowledge. In order to make optimal decisions under stress, it is important to understand these emotional stresses and plan for countering the effects of acute or chronically raised stress levels. The answers are not to be found in rigid protocols. Those may give us a superficial sense of safety, but will leave us both constricted from pursuing optimal care for our patients and potentially harmed by the delivery of perceived deficient care. Complexity in a time of change must be addressed with constant review and feedback to our systems of care. With respect to COVID-19, the pendulum is still swinging and uncertainty is the new normal. Until it stops, individuals and teams will have an increased role in devising the most effective methods of navigating barriers and operating within new parameters. You and your colleagues will be challenged by having your smooth systems of care disrupted by the COVID-19 environment and additional variables in the risk equation. Accept that both objective and emotional components further complicate already difficult problems. Go easy on each other and use your human superpower of flexibility to find the best option for the current scenario. We now have the expert commentary by Dr. Maya Kubert, who shares her valuable insights on effective leadership at the front line of the pandemic. Maya reflects on lessons from business experts on responding to the pandemic and distills the focus to one of humanity, the power of people to keep our healthcare workers and our patients safe. Expert commentary number four, healthcare leadership in COVID-19, getting better at getting better together.
from Dr. Mia Cubitt, Chair Victorian Faculty Board of the Australasian College for Emergency Medicine, in collaboration with Dr. Carmel Croc, Chair of the Australasian College for Emergency Medicine Quality and Safety Committee, and Nicola Bellenden, Executive Director Policy and Strategic Partnerships of the Australasian College for Emergency Medicine. He aha temea nui o te ao. He tangata, he tangata, he tangata. What is the most important thing in the world? It is people. It is people. It is people. In December 2019, after a colleague's nudge, I took on the role of Victorian Faculty Chair for the Australasian College for Emergency Medicine, also known as ASAM. In anticipation of the many challenges the role would bring, I began building the necessary skills, networks, and knowledge of the Victorian healthcare system. Then in January 2020, COVID-19 hit. Overnight, I found myself in rolling Zoom meetings and constantly on the phone, seeking to understand the multitude of rapidly evolving crises that emergency physicians were facing. It became clear that my role was to collate, synthesize, prioritize, and elevate their problems and ideally their solutions. But just who to, where, and how to efficiently and effectively do that is an opaque maze that I am still negotiating. Early in the pandemic, at an unrelated meeting, healthcare leaders discussed mental health reform, a sector that COVID-19 exposed as desperately in need of investment. Economist Pradeep Philip provided guiding principles that energised and challenged me. Know your purpose and drive implementation every day. Upskill with shifting demand, volume and complexity. Implement good healthcare governance, knowing when and how to change with processes to pivot. Use metrics and be aware of what you are maximising for. Stay the course. Make decisions close to where the people are. Use an evidence-driven approach. Make room for innovation and consider stakeholder management. As the pandemic progressed, I observed healthcare worker reactions of relief, validation and frustration as community acknowledgement of their vital roles and risks to personal safety grew. Healthcare worker issues have underpinned some heartbreaking pandemic moments and poor resolution of those issues has eroded trust. One distressing paradox has been the barriers preventing healthcare workers travelling to help colleagues in need. A geographical infection control strategy, lack of data on multi-site workforce commitments and suggestions that healthcare workers may be vectors have added seemingly insurmountable complexities. Systemic responses are at risk of failure without recognition that humanity, both the patients and the workforce caring for them, remain the essence of healthcare. Ironically, medical workforce issues were already subject to a review in Australia. Multiple reviews, specifically the Ontario Government Commission into Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, predicted issues and made recommendations that if implemented, may have prevented regrettable outcomes and inequities in the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Reviews, a time-honoured response to identified problems and perceived failures, are not new in healthcare improvement. 
However, clinicians often lament that in the hours and money invested in these processes, the approaches are poorly standardized, conclusions drawn are poorly shared, implementation of urgent and long-term recommendations do not follow, and little attention is paid to learning and scaling what has gone very well. So what can healthcare leaders learn from the pandemic? Amy Edmondson, Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at the Harvard Business School, writes that healthcare can take valuable lessons from successful business. Edmondson identifies three distinct phases of organization, and if we use this framework to reflect on our response to COVID-19, themes for ongoing improvement become apparent. Building community with communication and trust, getting better at implementation, and using our collective experience to determine what next, empowering healthcare leadership in all of us. Phase one, building community with communication and trust. Edmondson describes the intense overwork of our early response to COVID-19 as akin to phase one in the S-curve for successful startups. In the hours we all contributed, I learned healthcare improvement can be much faster but our efficiency is hampered by outdated knowledge sharing methods and absent communication strategies. The COVID-19 infodemic has highlighted our need for curation solutions to minimize and prioritize high quality information. ASEM and other organizations created open access online hubs with living peer reviewed guidance. In my leadership journey, this ASEM COVID-19 guideline group was invaluable Debriefing with colleagues and distilling problems to impactful principles and recommendations built my courage, calmed my reactive tendencies, and created space for wisdom. Given the hours we spent formulating guidelines, I was gutted when a colleague questioned ASEM's value. It was a stark reminder that reviews and guidelines cannot be beneficial if their target audience are not engaged. Healthcare workers as individuals have access to unprecedented communication options, yet within our own networks, few or no communication strategies exist that span the interdependent groups, characteristic of modern healthcare practice. In a frustrating example, despite a Victorian government strategy to digitize statewide healthcare systems, Many healthcare workers still find themselves requesting critical patient information via fax. I discovered in my state role that no strategies exist to connect diverse groups of clinicians tackling similar problems. We transitioned ASM faculty meetings online with record engagement from across the state and improved diversity of voices in the room, including from colleagues outside our usual sphere. Despite all the Zoom meetings, Adaptive spaces where governance and operational healthcare workers can connect to build improvement remain elusive. It is likely that a blame culture driven by fear that human fallibility will be exploited and leveraged politically is preventing the breakdown of these silos. An observed association between politicization and failure of COVID-19 responses highlights the importance of a safety to paradigm to drive transparency in data, debate, respectful dissonance, and decision-making rationale. Without it, the subsequent communication void is filled with conflicted empire builders, speculation, 
and disrespectful media debate. Phase two, implementation exposed, getting better at getting better. Though necessary, a workforce, expert guidance, and effective communication are not sufficient. As with startups, we must now transition to a sustainable phase two in order to avoid inevitable exhaustion of financial and human resources. Healthcare leaders are acknowledging this by modeling. I'm not okay. I'm exhausted. And importantly, what's next? Perhaps, as Professor Victoria Brazel suggests, in order to transition to sustainable healthcare improvement, we all need to learn how to get better at getting better. Implementation of daily healthcare responses in both the pre-pandemic and COVID-19 era often require healthcare worker expertise to resolve unforeseen problems. Edmondson describes the problems healthcare workers face as a disruption in a worker's ability to execute a prescribed task because either something the worker needs is unavailable in the time, location, condition or quantity desired and hence the task cannot be executed as planned or something is present that should not be interfering with the designated task. Brazel suggests implementation along with education techniques such as simulation to enable system learning from problem recognition may be crucial to achieving sustainable healthcare improvement. COVID-19 failures such as hotel quarantine demonstrate the risks of poor implementation and verification and lack of necessary healthcare worker problem solving. Sadly, Edmondson shows healthcare workers may be martyrs to our importance in implementation and the gratifying psychology of feeling necessary. Sustained systemic failures have ingrained healthcare worker problem-solving habits and a culture that precludes system improvement to prevent them reoccurring. Edmondson found that for healthcare workers, barriers to system efficiency include time taken from patient care, performance indicators that don't include healthcare improvement, a stigma in not being able to find a workaround, conflict when escalating problems to managers focused on individual behaviours, a culture wary of dissonance in systems others tacitly endorse, a lack of resource allocation to the roles of process improvement. Phase three, building a community of system-first thinkers leading from the front line. Being both clinician and advocate during the crisis has provided a unique vantage point to consider the structure, strengths, vulnerabilities, and opportunities in our system. I've also had valuable opportunities to learn about my own contributions and failures. After contracting COVID-19, I experienced an enforced debrief, reflection, and recharge. Debriefs with colleagues, family, and friends build the community that keeps healthcare workers going. I've learned leadership requires honest acceptance of one's own scope and skill set, along with the uncertainty, risk, and complexity of the system. I've learned leaders gain respect through knowing, but also in not knowing, if rapidly followed by, let's find out together, and by creating space to drive curiosity and connection. Leaders that inspire me build trust through respect for workforce, 
good governance and communication. They demonstrate competence in implementation, along with just the right amount of humility, vulnerability and intellectual candour. I'm constantly reminded that small habitual improvements are more achievable and sustainable than the larger ones I really want us all to take. Finally, despite overwhelming uncertainty and the volume and complexity of issues we face, somehow, I believe the COVID-19 pandemic has refocused us on the essence of healthcare, humanity, our patients and our healthcare workers. Unfortunately, the spotlight and sorely needed investment in healthcare has also stimulated humanity's darker side, competition, hostility, sexism, and a lust for renown. Now, a brave moment of reflection and leadership is required from all of us to drive community with a unity of purpose, guided not by those screaming the loudest, but by the dominant community narrative with shared knowledge, understanding, and mutual respect in order to deliver excellence. Thanks for tuning into this podcast episode. Remember the online print versions are available at our website at www.thecommunicates.com, which also include a list of resources and any references that the experts recommended. I'm Nicola Cunningham. Thanks for listening.